All right, it's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. Uh, last week, we celebrated our list of the best new restaurants in America uh, at our annual Hot 10 party. And while all the chefs were in town for the bash, we had the opportunity to chat with a couple of them on the podcast. First up, Deputy Editor Julia Kramer sits down with Orenda Hale, owner and manager of our number nine spot, Drifter's Wife in Portland, Maine. And after that, Associate Editor Hillary Cadigan talks to Knight Yun, chef owner of Nyambai, our number five restaurant in Oakland, California. But before we get started, a couple of announcements. First off, I want to ask you guys, our listeners, for a favor. Uh, we're coming up on the most important time of the year, aka Thanksgiving, and we want your questions. Like if you're nervous about hosting or wondering how to get your turkey moist and delicious, or like can you reheat the mashed potatoes? How do you get the mashed potatoes extra creamy? All those important things you need to know for the big meal. So what to do is this. Email your questions along with your name and where you live to bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. And maybe, just maybe, food director Carla Music will answer your question on air. It's like your own personal Thanksgiving hotline. That is bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Email us. We can't wait to hear from you. Also, we here at Bon Appetit are offering an exclusive offer to podcast listeners. Use the promo code TAKE20, that is TAKE20, at bonappetit.com slash foodcast for 20% off. 20% off our normally priced subscription to the magazine. Uh, When people subscribe, they will also receive our Don't Worry, Eat Happy tote bag and five downloadable cookbooklets. Cocktails, desserts, grilling, main sides, all with about seven or eight recipes. All right, and with that, here is Julia Kramer with Arenda Hale from Drifter's Wife in Portland, Maine. So Drifter's Wife was in our hot 10 this year. Um, A restaurant, I would say for lack of a better term, very farm-to-table, sort of like rustic American food with an amazing wine shop next door and notably located in Portland, Maine, which was also our city of the year. Um, So kind of an epic year for you guys. And um, in the feature that we did on Drifter's Wife in the September issue, we sort of went step by step through how this restaurant came to be. And it was a bit of a circuitous route. So I was hoping that you could just kind of talk me through that and how this all happened and how you went from, you know, someone who'd spent 10 years in the New York restaurant industry to moving to Maine. Yeah. Um, So when Peter and I met, actually, I was already at the point where I was done with New York. And he, I think, was trying to court me more than I was interested in him at first. So (laughs) when we first met, I said, I'm not spending another summer in New York. And I think he thought, like, oh, we'll just get away for the summer and, like, go somewhere and then come back um, initially. And and so he sort of followed me, and we didn't move that far. Um, We moved up to Hudson, New York. Mm -hmm. And I think that felt like a safe distance. We were two-hour train ride. If we missed New York or missed our friends, we could come back. Um, We had heard great things about Hudson and the community, and other than that, we didn't really know much, and we tend to be both impulsive, and then once we get ourselves into a situation, we are 
sort of left with, oh, what do we do now? Um, and we realized that Hudson was super small. Um, there were not really any restaurants that we wanted to work at. And so we were not there very long, and it was really sort of a home base for us to decide, well, where do we want to actually build a new life? And at that point, I was pregnant with our first child. And so it was really like finding a place that we wanted to raise our son um, that had good schools, that had more of a community than we felt Hudson had, and also that had a restaurant scene because we just needed to land jobs, to, mm-hmm. to be honest, at first. Like, we knew that we could get a job in a restaurant, that that would be easy. And so we were looking to stay on the Northeast just because family's here. And once you narrow down mid-sized cities in the Northeast, we were, you know, there's Providence and there's Boston, which we just straight away knew wasn't a good fit for who we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's Portland, Maine. And Peter had more of a connection to Maine. I'd never actually been to Maine, but he used to spend every summer on Bailey Island. And his mom grew up in like dairy country, like I don't even know, like way up in in North Maine. But his parents had happened to move from West Texas a couple years before we moved and retired there. And so the fact that they were there felt like kind of like home base. Um, My family was mostly scattered throughout New York still, so it seemed like not too far. And we just, we knew the schools were good. That was honestly like one of the big selling points that they have great public schools and there's a huge restaurant scene for the size of the actual city. Mm -hmm. And so we figured, well, at least we can get a job (laughs) to start, you know, (laughs) we can move there. There's great schools and we can get a job. And, And that was like pretty elementary that's like as far as our thought process went and so we just picked up and moved to Portland Maine um, and found jobs pretty quickly so initially you were planning on working in other people's restaurants yes yeah we had been planning that whole time while we were in Hudson our own business model but we knew initially off the ground we needed to just find work until we were able to finish the like business model and sort of like land in Portland and see what the vibe was and what the scene was and sort of how our, our model initially was a wine shop and a restaurant. And then as we landed in Portland and it started to develop more seriously, we realized, well, one, we didn't have enough capital <laughs> to open a restaurant. And also, two, we didn't have a chef. And so the idea morphed and I don't remember this but Peter always credits this that it was my idea for the wine shop um, so I'll take it uh, to start with a retail wine shop because you need less investment um, we could be the only two employees easily so we wouldn't have to deal with hiring staff we could just work all the time until the business made enough to hire someone else and then I think what really appealed to us knowing we were going to have a baby and I was I was super pregnant at the time that we could have retail hours and this you know we were used to restaurant hours where yeah. we went in at two and you know left at 1 a.m or whenever the restaurant happened to close and so the idea that we could come in at noon and like then turn the close sign at 7 p.m and go home and all have dinner together seemed like really sweet Pretty <laughs> to <nice>. us <laughs> it's like something like really charming about that and so portland is a wonderful city and i don't i don't know this about other mid-sized cities if it's as easy but 
you know, we went to the small business development center. It's like sounds like very like cheesy and old school, like uh-huh. but we went to the small business development center in Maine, um, and then they put us in touch with contacts at the city of Portland, and they helped us get a city from the loan. And it, but it all was very fluid and much easier than we had expected. And the city itself is really wonderful in trying to uplift small businesses, which I think why there's so many of them, which is just amazing. Something that we didn't know before moving because we didn't do very well of a research job on that, (laughs) but something that pleasantly surprised us um, and made it possible to open the shop. And do you think that that type of support accounts for the sort of crazy growth of the Portland restaurant scene since you've been there or otherwise what do you sort of chalk that up to? I think it's a mix of factors. I mean the growing season in Maine is very short Mm -hmm. but there's obviously there's a bounty when it is this like season of summer or fall. It's obviously a very long winter so that can be like tough for for produce but there's the access that we have to seafood and and like pasture-raised proteins is amazing. Um, it's just none other. I know Chef Ben is always like, he gets emotional when he talks about the access that he has to the fresh seafood. It's none other than he's seen ever, you know? So it's that's really amazing. I think that certainly draws people who want to open restaurants knowing that you have have that at your doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, I think New York also like traumatizes you. Like, you have to like fight <laughs> to get anything, you know, yeah. and so to have just sort of easy yeah. access. And it's, it's certainly, there are a lot of people that are moving to Portland that have lived in other cosmopolitan cities that still want to live in somewhat of a city, but definitely are ready to take a step back and move to a slower pace of life. But wants some of the things that you're used to having in the city. Um, and that certainly brought a more wealth of diversity of, of restaurants, which is really nice. It's not just all farm to table. They're all sort of like seafood, Maine, Americana. Um, there's a lot of other cuisines that are coming up, which is nice as someone who lives there too, that it's you actually have like diversity of spots to choose from. Yeah, totally. Andrew Dalton, our editor-at-large, talked a lot about that when he chose Portland as the city of the year and just how it's always been a great food city. There's always been, you know, where you go to get mussels and lobster rolls and all of that. But now it's also a place that has like amazing pho and this like guy who does like a sushi cart that you can follow around and um, just this like incredible diversity that maybe was not as prevalent a few years ago. Is there any like backlash among the local like sort of like uh, people who feel they were their first type of vibe like when our city of the year thing came out I, I was like pretty shocked by the um intensely positive reaction that it got like people were going crazy but then it also seemed like a, almost a little scary like the the oyster bar was like running out of oysters and the like croissant place was like sold out of croissants. Like was anyone there like, um, you know, get out of our, get out of our town? No, I mean, I certainly, because the the article mentioned a lot of particularly new businesses and, and small owned businesses, whether a lot of them happen to be husband and wife. Um, but they're 
certainly businesses that I know the owners well enough that and have like seen them on a daily basis and have talked to them that we were much more appreciative as as business owners to have new people coming in and business. It was really like a factor of trying to figure out how long would actually stay busy mm-hmm. and and how to sort of mold your business like to staff more or is this going to last or like how long will this do we ride this wave like when do we start to make changes in the business so that we can operate more effectively um it became more of a conversation of that than being angry or overwhelmed (laughs) of at the amount of business it was certainly for us we like ben and peter and i were finally like finally we have a restaurant with people in it it felt (laughs) amazing um and We've worked in busy restaurants, and so to us it felt more natural, and it it's something that we thrive and thrive on and enjoy. So it was so welcoming. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say like finally we have a restaurant with people yeah. in it, just to I guess go back a a few steps. So I imagining it it was not always this way. Like so you had you opened this wine store like with support from the city and then it sort of slowly morphed into this restaurant. Can you talk about like what the next stage was? Yeah, so we opened the wine shop in January of 2015 and it was probably about the summer of 2015 that Peter and I realized, man, we don't have enough customers (laughs) in the wine shop. And retail is hard anyway when you're, if you're on the you know, the corner wine shop in Brooklyn, you have thousands and thousands of people just in your five block radius. So, um, but in Portland, um, the margins are so small on retail and particularly in Maine, you can sell wine anywhere. So you could be a little corner bakery spot and also have a rack of wine or you could be a little bodega and also have a rack of wine so you supermarkets can sell wine so it was you can literally buy wine everywhere so the fact that we were a standalone wine shop means that people would have to come out of their way to come to this wine shop that maybe they've never heard of and this thing natural wine which at the time in Portland wasn't really talked about certainly wasn't you didn't see natural wine on wine lists. You know, I remember when we first moved, going out to dinner and just like looking at a wine list and there might be something like one glass that we would know or one bottle on a list that we knew as a natural wine. And there were a couple of places around town where we could like pick like, oh, there's that, there's this. But, but it really wasn't a scene in Portland. And so the fact that people weren't being exposed to it in restaurants or at the supermarket means that our standalone store of just selling natural wine needed something else. And we knew that we just needed to open up the wine mm-hmm. and and have it in a cool place where we would want to hang out. And that was also something we felt was missing in Portland. You know, the sort of like sexy vibe, the music, just the energy and feel that you get in restaurants and you see it see it all the time in New York and Brooklyn. It's just It's just a given here, but we felt like that was missing in Portland. Portland had great food, we felt like, great restaurants that had great food, but it's sort of like the whole package of the atmosphere and the service and just like the vibe and energy of the restaurant um, was something that we felt was a real whole and that if we needed to open the wine anyway, we might as well just like (laughs) make our own spot. And Uh so it happened 
that we just sort of like added it in front of our space because our landlord was really great and let us just sort of like shift the retail into a restaurant. Um, And it was around that time that we reached out to our friend Ben who had left the city around the same time we did, um, but had sort of done the same thing, like moved way far to the other extreme. He moved to Boone, North Carolina, which Hmm. is like in the middle of nowhere, North Carolina in the mountains. Um, And they were just not very happy where they were as well and kind of like trying to figure out what was the next game plan. And so we just said, you guys should come up and like visit Portland and, um, and then they moved up a couple months later, and we just sort of opened this makeshift restaurant, um, which was essentially just a one-person kitchen, and Ben working on two induction burners. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's crazy now when we when we talk about it, and like for all of us, because one we did that for two years, which seems crazy, but also the fact that Ben would come in every day and prep all of the food while washing his own dishes because there's no dishwasher, and then cook service every night, and then clean up and have to wrap up the kitchen, and then come and do that again the next day. Yeah, we're, we're just like blows our minds. <laughs> so that we're literally like, one man kitchen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so after two years, it was sort of the the breaking point. It was a really small restaurant. It was about 20 seats. So, but that was enough that, you know, Ben working all morning into the evening and then through service, um, even though it wasn't super busy all the time, when it was busy, it was just, it was like too much for one person. And Mm -hmm. so that's when we were trying to figure out what the next move was. And a space next door, um, which used to be a restaurant that had closed, our landlord was really like pushing for us to to move both the wine shop and the restaurant there. And we finally decided, yeah, this is this seems too good to be true. There's the things that are really costly with opening a restaurant, like a walk-in and a hood system and plumbing for bathrooms. All those things were already there. So really it just had we just had to move over and make the front of house look the way we'd wanted it to look. And since the first iteration of Drifter's Wife had kind of happened like on the fly in terms of just shifting the wine store in the back and putting yeah. some induction burners in the front, were there specific things that you really wanted to have once you could actually sort of build your restaurant? Yeah, I know for sure Ben wanted fire. Uh-huh. <laughs> he wanted to be able to cook on a range and have fire. I think to have space enough for other hands in the kitchen um, was certainly a big thing. A lot of the things were mostly back of house related. Front of house, we decided, of course, now that we have this opportunity, we're going to add a full bar. So the old drifter's wife, it was there was a bar, but it was really just like a facade of a bar because there wasn't any plumbing behind there. And so it really just was beer and bottled or canned wine. and. Now at the new restaurant, we have full bar. The other big thing is just storage, which something that 
you know, most people might not think about unless you're a chef, which is that, you know, you have to prep things for days and days in advance or if you make a stock and like where to keep it. And we didn't have a walk-in at Drifters One Wife 1.0. There's literally like a home fridge in our office. Uh-huh. And so you could, it was just packed full all the time. And there's only so much that he could prep to try and get ahead. So it, it was just like every day you were trying to play catch up. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have a walk-in, you can plan for the week a little bit better and it doesn't feel like every day you're trying to just like stay Start above from water. Scratch, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then in your new space, what is the relationship like between the wine shop and the restaurant? Like how how much of the business is people coming to intentionally to the wine store versus intentionally to eat dinner? Yeah, they they play really nicely with each other and they're also they're definitely regulars in the shop and regulars in the restaurant and we've started to see them morph over into each other people that maybe only for the first couple of years used to go to the wine shop that now are coming to the restaurant or people that would happen to only go to the restaurant that now are becoming regulars in the shop and so they're sort of they play really nicely with each other and complement each other um it's really great to be able to have the shop there and to have the restaurant together, um, it's it's something that you can't do in New York, I right, know. Yeah. Um, so it would be awesome if Maine went a step further, like in California, that you could just walk into the shop and pick any bottle and then have that for dinner. Um, maybe but you can't eventually, do that. No. <laughs> maybe eventually they'll, they'll like relax on the regulations even more, which... Um, would be wonderful because then it could just the whole list would be whatever's in the shop and it would play into like it feels more European you know like you Mm -hmm. go into a cob and you can just pick a bottle and then there's a corkage fee and you can drink it in the restaurant Um, that that would be like the only next amazing thing for us if that was possible but but otherwise it's it's just really special to have the sort of relationship between the two and how have you seen people's sort of taste in wine change over the last few years since you first opened the shop? Yeah, there, I mean, there's certainly more people, just people in general coming in. But I also, I don't think just because of our restaurant, I know there are other restaurants around town now that serve Nacho wine and there are other like shops and groceries that, that sell Nacho wine too. And so I think just all of that helps spread the word of natural wine and and just honestly once once you drink natural wine if you've been drinking conventional wine it just tastes better mm-hmm. um like this the spectrum of flavors is more dynamic it's more broad like yeah there's you can get like the real like natty weird stuff and peter likes that more than i do uh-huh. i kind of like like natural wine can taste like very clean and precise and and beautiful too and peter can get down with like wine that's like volatile and like wacky and weird and there's certainly like kids that come in and ask for that not like kids kids but like (laughs) say kids like 20 year olds (laughs) um that come in and ask for that um but there are also people who just like the idea of what natural wine is and that it's supporting smaller producers and and people who are farming organically and not using synthetics and chemicals and pesticides in the field and certainly people are eating that way and they I think they have been for years the like 
whole spectrum of people go to the farmer's market and they try totally. to eat locally and you're not going to eat tomatoes in January. You know, like really appreciating the seasons and food for when it's available. And I think the extension now, people are finally realizing, oh, like what am, what am I drinking? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of conventional wine is, it's, you know, there's a huge list that you don't have to put on the bottle uh, of things that can be added into a wine. You can find with egg whites, you can add coloring, you can make wine. A lot of conventional wine will buy yeast strains so that it tastes a certain way if they think their Chardonnay should taste like buttery mm-hmm. oaked chips or what, you know, and you can buy yeast strains to make it taste that way. And so I think a lot of people are, it's opening the door and maybe bridging that gap between food and wine and and thinking about the way that they drink as much as the way that they eat. So to go back to one thing you mentioned earlier about, you know, now you're in this place where in the same month you're in the hot 10, Portland's city of the year. It was also the middle of August, so like peak tourist season in, in Maine. Have things sort of evened out since then? How has the move into fall been? Yeah, the so the when the Portland was named Food City of the Year, that was certainly when we first saw a spike in business. And I know a lot of the the local businesses on Washington Ave also did, for sure. And then when the Hot Ten came out, I think we had sort of reached capacity of our restaurant. We saw for the first time, like, oh, this is probably as busy as we could get, you uh-huh. know, for the amount of staff that we have and how many tables. And um, it felt like okay, that's that's great. And it felt wonderful to have a busy restaurant with people in there. Um, and then there's sort of like, we was the spectrum of, oh, well, so what will happen after Labor Day? And we certainly saw like a notch down, but there's still quite a bit of tourists and like cruise ships and just people coming to Maine in September. It's, it's actually like becomes less crowded, but it's still beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of a more mellow vibe of tourist season in Maine, but still really busy. Um, and then the sort of like the next notch down is after Columbus Day, like, ooh, wondering what's going to happen. Because usually after Columbus Day is when Maine kind of starts to go into slow season. Like hibernation. Um, yeah. And, and I've, you know, I've I've even heard from from local hotels that they're like booked through November, which is a thing that has not happened before. And so I think, I think for sure the article on Portland being the food city, it's just like, it's continuing to show that, that people are still coming, which is great because usually it's like October, Columbus Day, it sort of dies. And, and we just, <laughs> we would like rely on the small community, which is not that big. And there yeah. are a lot of places to eat. So it's, it certainly becomes it's like a tougher season, and and we've seen it slow down, you know, more in the week, but it's still really busy on the weekends, and it's been great. Yeah, that's good to hear. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for taking a break and coming down yeah, to New York. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs> All right, um, Knight, it's so exciting to have you here. Um, we've chatted quite a bit over the phone, especially when we were putting together this year's Hot Ten. Um, and your restaurant, Yumbai in Oakland, clinched the number five spot. Um, and now we're all here in New York to celebrate. <laughs> so welcome. Thank you. So um, you have kind of one of the most interesting restaurant origin stories that I've ever heard, which dates back all the way to you being born in a refugee camp in Thailand um, after your parents fled the genocide in Cambodia. Um, so can you kind of take us back to the beginning and maybe let's start with like, what's your sort of strongest, earliest memory, food related or otherwise? 
Well, growing up in Stockton, um, I didn't really have anywhere to hang out besides the kitchen with my mom. I remember helping her cut like lemongrass, just the smell of like, it's just so aromatic. And then how the texture was really hard and having to sharpen the knives, just cut lemongrass with my mom or pounding lemongrass using a mortar and pesto. Like, this was before I even started school, really. So. Mm-hmm. so your family moved to Stockton from straight from Thailand or there was sort of some in between? We moved to Texas. We stayed there for a few months until my parents heard that Stockton's climate was very similar to Cambodia, and so we ended up in Stockton. You know, tell me a little bit about growing up in Stockton. You said you had a pretty big Cambodian community there, but, you know, you said you also spent a lot of time sort of at home with your mom in the kitchen. And he didn't know that we were that different because there was such a big Cambodian community. A lot of people that moved to Stockton like heard the same thing about, you know, the climate and just that there's other Cambodians in the in Stockton. But um, we didn't really hang out with a lot of other Cambodians. And so for what reason, I'm not too sure, but I would always spend time with my mom in the kitchen just because that's all I really knew. Um, it was like a small one-bedroom apartment. My brothers were doing their things, and um, I would always, like, my I was my mom assistant, like helping her um, go to the grocery store, picking up like produce, meats, and things like that. You're the sous chef. Yes, I was. Uh-huh. <laughs> As you were growing up, then um, I know at one point you decided you were going to be a nurse. Mm-hmm. Is that right? I did. <laughs> <laughs> and what changed? <laughs> well, it all changed when I was um, doing my clinicals. I had to take vitals for a patient, and um, I just looked at him, and I honestly didn't care about him whatsoever. <laughs> I'm like, how could I possibly end up being a nurse if I just didn't care about this patient? And so. That day, I called my mom and I told her that I was dropping out of nursing school. What did she say? She actually supported me, which I was really surprised because she was the one that pushed me to like f- look for a job that's practical. And so I wish I knew that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could have skipped a whole step there. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> so then, you know, after you became, you decided this was not what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. Then you said you went to Cambodia, and it was the first time actually. But you told me that you felt like you were sort of going back to a place, even though you'd never been there before, which is probably like a pretty common sensation mm-hmm. for second generation kids like that, but something that a lot of people just don't understand. So mm-hmm. can you kind of explain to me what it was like the first time you stepped off the plane in Cambodia and were like, here I am? Oh, wow. I mean, it felt like home, even though I've never been there. It's just a place that I heard stories about growing up being Cambodian. Is just that when I got off the plane, everyone was speaking the language, the smell and sound, like the weather and everything just felt like home. It was just so strange. And, um, you know, the trip was only supposed to be for about a week, but I ended up staying for a whole month. And what did you eat there? Well, the first thing I ate was Kateo Prompen, which is the uh, pork noodle soup that I have on the menu right now. I mean, everywhere I went, there was like a corner, like a noodle stall. I wanted to try every noodle stall that was there. So, <laughs> did, you, did you succeed in that? Um, almost, <laughs> almost, yeah. <laughs> and um, you said at one point you had a kind of otherworldly experience mm-hmm. with a bowl of noodle soup. Can mm-hmm. you kind of take me back to that moment and, and to that soup? Oh, gosh. So it was in the um, Russian market. Went there for breakfast, just like my normal routine, and um, had ordered a bowl of soup and, you know, took a bite, slurped the broth, and I just realized that I wanted to open up a Cambodian restaurant back home in the Bay Area. The idea just came to me, and I had no 
other option but to go back home and to start a Cambodian um, food business. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a pretty magical bowl of soup. Oh my god, I can't <laughs> believe it. Yeah, just right now, still, like I have goosebumps thinking about that moment. It's just so unreal. Wow. <laughs> so describe that soup to me, because now you do serve it on your menu at mm-hmm. Mumbai, right? Yeah, I mean, um, people like to compare it to other noodle soups like pho, but then like the Japanese have ramen, Vietnamese have pho, but Cambodia, we have kutil, which is like a delicate pork broth, but it's rich at the same time. It's served with rice noodles, minced pork. Um, You can have like shrimp toppings, but most importantly, you need the uh, fried garlic oil, herbs like cilantro and green onions, um, boiled with bean sprouts. And then sometimes if you want, you can um, have it with like a savory donut sticks that you dip in the broth. It's just so delicious. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So where did your recipe from that come from? Was it something that you had been served growing up that you've sort of adapted or how did that work? Yeah, um, I learned how to cook this with my mom. Like she didn't give me the exact recipe. It was mainly like an eyeball recipe or like a thumb size of this or a pinky size of that. So when I had to perfect the recipe, it was a trial and error where I would have to call my mom like once in a while just to get the recipe and then kind of tweak things on my own. Yeah, it was like a really long process, which I didn't expect because I grew up eating the broth, but just to get it to like the right taste took a while. Mm-hmm. Did she? Did your mom approve of the soup? Um, she did. She and my dad went out to the restaurant just to eat the soup and um, didn't really hang out. After they ate, they just left. So <laughs> <laughs> they wanted to come by just to eat the soup. <laughs> I guess that's a good sign. <laughs> so you, to in order to open the restaurant, I guess we're, we skipped some steps. Mm-hmm. You know, you you came back from Cambodia. You had this sudden vision that you needed to open this restaurant but kind of in between there you were part of the La Cocina uh, incubator program Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. How did that happen and you know how did you get involved and what did that change for you? So I started cooking from my house and inviting strangers and friends to come over just to experiment to see just to get feedback from people and then um, I heard about this nonprofit organization in San Francisco called La Cocina. It's really an intense program and um, I thought that I would never like get into the program just because it's really intense and I had no knowledge of like operating a business or I didn't even go to culinary school so I thought I didn't have a chance but um, I went to one of their meetings and um, they encouraged me to apply for the program but um, I didn't because I was a chicken and I didn't know that I was ready to start my own food business but um, again they reached out to me and told me to apply for the program Um, and asked me to cater one of their um, um, board meetings. And so I was hesitant at first just because it would be my real, like, gig. But I said yes, and um, that turned out to be, like, an informal, like, meeting interview. And so after that, they emailed me and said I got accepted to the program. And so that kind of changed everything because they have been such a great resource for, like, learning how to operate a business, just believing in myself and how to like work in a commercial kitchen and um, just like the abundant of resources that they have that allowed me like to have this opportunity to open up Yambai. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what was the biggest thing that you learned between like, you know, growing up cooking all the time and knowing these flavors and then, you know, taking that step to like, okay, now I'm going to be running this restaurant for other people. Oh man, I think I'm still learning. <laughs> but um, I mean, just Having a good team really helps because without a team, then um, I think this would be a really hard process. Taking care of the staff, making sure that they feel involved. And who's on your team? How did you put your team together? It's just kind of random, like word of mouth. Like most of my staff, they're 
also refugees and immigrants. But um, it's just like a friend would say, hey, I know someone. And then that friend would say, I know someone. And so that's how I now have my team. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, tell me about the process of putting the menu together when you were just pulling from different memories or experiences that you had in Cambodia. Well, in the beginning, it was such a challenge just because I wanted to please everyone or cater to like a bigger audience. I just didn't know like what would be the best menu. But then at the end of the day, like the conclusion that I have was, you know what, I'm just going to put like, all the dishes I love to eat, all the food that I miss on the menu. And so now on the menu, it's like all my like favorite dishes that I grew up eating. And tell me about a few of them besides the magical soup. Besides the magical soup, I love this pork belly dip, which is called prahokti. Um, to me, that's like the best thing ever like even if there's like a little bit of like scraps left on the pot I would like take a little bit of white rice and just like make stir like fried rice out of it and also the pork and bai which is like a coconut pork dish served with um, rice it's um, very nostalgic because it's something that my mom would always make for me growing up what else do I really love I mean everything really (laughs) (laughs) are all the items coming from stuff that you made growing up or that you ate growing up or did you have to pull any from elsewhere um, like most of it are all the dishes that I grew up eating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so let's talk about prahok. Um, mm. Am I saying that right? Oh yeah, prahok. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> so this is like a fermented fish paste that I know a lot of people have strong feelings mm-hmm. about, but it's kind of one of the backbones of Cambodian cooking. Um, how, like, what is it? How is it made? What does it smell like? What does it taste like? Basically is a um, fermented fish paste. The way you make brahok is basically you let it rot, basically, <laughs> but it becomes like this nice, like it just adds so much flavor to like the like Cambodian like classical classic dishes. Without brahok, I don't think you can call it a Cambodian dish because we use it in stews and paste. We use it to marinate um, a lot of meats. Um, so if you can get past the smell, I think you would truly love like the flavor of it mixed with like other ingredients like coconut milk and a bunch of herbs that we use in Cambodian cooking. And how early were you eating this? Like were you, was there a time in your life when you were a kid and you were like, I'm not eating fermented fish paste? Or was it just right off the bat? Um, right off the bat. <laughs> I don't know what it was, even though my brothers didn't really like it, but I just love it so much. Like scooping out the fish paste like with my hands and like dipping it with rice and like putting a piece of vegetable in there. It's just the best. <laughs> <laughs> and did your mom used to make it growing up or was that something that you would just buy at the store? My mom would make it, yeah. Our house would smell like bahok, which I didn't realize <laughs> until friends would come over, but... <laughs> You're like, hmm, interesting. <laughs> so, and then the dip that you guys make out of it is has pork belly in it too, mm-hmm. right? So you cook down the bahok until it has like this nice aroma, and then you pour in coconut milk, mix it in with the um, fermented fish paste, and then you add the pork belly. You cook it down, and then there's this other important ingredient in Khmer cooking, which is called kuryung. It's a blend of lemongrass, shallots, galanga, turmeric and lime leaves and all that together is just magical. So you've said that, you know, with this restaurant, you're kind of trying to go back further than, you know, the genocide and what people know about Cambodia as, you know, the this kind of painful experience that your parents lived through to the golden age of Cambodia. And that's kind of what Nyambai is supposed to capture. So can you tell me, kind of bring me back, what is what is the golden age of Cambodia? When was it and what was happening there? 
Yeah, so beyond like the genocide um, during the 50s and 60s and early 70s, it was the golden era where um, the art scene, the music was just thriving in Cambodia. And this was also like my parents' youth where they were teenagers growing up in Cambodia. They didn't have like a care in the world. You know, they just went to school, listened to like rock and roll music. And so this was the time that I want to celebrate in Yambai rather than like bring up the genocide. It's rather a place to celebrate Cambodia and hopefully a place to heal and to bring good memories. And you've got um, decorated on the walls, you have records from the golden age. So on one side of the wall in the restaurant, it's really special because I was able to retrieve like original 45 album records that's now on the wall. It's special because um, these are more like artifacts now because they were destroyed during the genocide and to be able to meet one of the surviving artists who basically sacrificed his life to preserve these records was just like such a special moment and to actually have the records at the shop right now it's like even more special wow Mm -hmm. that's so cool so what was I mean what what kind of stories did your parents tell you about this golden age so my dad talked about it more than my mom just Mm -hmm. because I think my mom was like reserved but my mom when she talks about the golden era she just remembers like swimming in the river like right across like the village from where she lived um like there was like concerts always in the village, but my dad um, learned how to fix motorcycles from the Japanese. And so like the Japanese love that music. And so my dad would always like bring them more like music for them to listen to. But um, he was able to introduce us to like the Khmer rock and roll when we grew up in Stockton. And so, yeah, he would just talk about how he would go to concerts and like, you know, just like nothing to really worry about, you know? It's just like the good times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. What were they eating at those at that time? Um, they ate a lot of rice with dried fish, bahok, of course, <laughs> um, and um, like soups made with bahok and like veggies that they grew in the like, garden. And what has it been like kind of trying to introduce this to, you know, people who may have never even had Cambodian food before? You know, you're trying to sort of, I mean, it's not like our history books in America have much information about anything that happened in Cambodia you know do you feel like you're starting from scratch with a lot of people who come into the restaurant I am but before I say anything I just like tell them hey why don't you just try it first eat it first <laughs> get them hooked and then tell them what it is <laughs> yeah <laughs> no but um people come in like they've been to Cambodia before they just want to re- relive that moment or people that are just like so interested in the cuisine because they know nothing about it if they do want to know like what's the difference between like Vietnamese food or Thai food because I often get that comparison like oh wow is it li- like similar to Vietnamese or Thai I'm like well I mean it goes beyond that like Cambodian cuisine it's just so ancient it existed even before like Thailand and Vietnam was like, you know a country mm-hmm. and so I just tell them you know it's like a very ancient cuisine it dates back a few thousand years and like the method that we use now and the ingredients that we use now is still similar to like what my mom used in the kitchen and what I use in the kitchen which is like the fermented fish paste bahok um, using kriung, like a lot of herbs like lemongrass shallots peppercorns and lime leaves so and you don't really season a lot of dishes too you just kind of let the ingredients like speak for itself that's why we use a lot of like raw veggies like the fish 
we let it sit there and like have like the natural flavor comes out <laughs> coconut milk you don't do much to that just like combining all this ingredients together it's just so delicious mm-hmm. so like somebody comes in for the first time do you have like a starter dish that you give them and then they have to work their way up I always love to give people the pahokati because it's my favorite <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like if you love their pahokati then for sure you'll love like everything else on the menu <laughs> so start them off strong yeah. <laughs> yeah. is there anything you know that you've kind of learned from this experience of you know starting this restaurant and I mean it's your very first restaurant and it's been pretty successful I would say (laughs) how would you do you have any like words of advice for people who are trying to do the same like men who maybe are also refugees or also immigrants in this time wow I think I'm I mean I'm still learning but when I get a moment to reflect back on where I'm at it's just just don't give up on what you want to do it was your dream to open up a restaurant or pursue whatever it is like you'll face like obstacles but just don't let that stop you from achieving your goals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you would do it again if you had the chance um yes (laughs) (laughs) awesome well thank you so much for coming in and it was it was such a it was so much fun chatting with you thank you so much The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.